Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History, the podcast that takes a look at the most important, controversial uh, events, ideas, and persons in the history of the Catholic Church, the Communion of Rome. Uh, my name is Derek Taylor, your host for this podcast. Thank you for being with us. If you want to find out more about the podcast, you can go to my Facebook page, Controversies in Church History. You can also go to my website, uh, where I have info, links to all the episodes, which are also on multiple platforms, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, Anchor is the actual platform I use. And uh, also on the website, you'll have have a blog, some blog posts, original stuff. I also have links to articles I've written and published. I have a new one out, actually, published in Crisis Magazine on the web. It's free. Go check it out. Uh, so uh, go look at that. And uh, if you have any questions or, or, or any uh, anything to interest you, if you want to talk to me about, go and send me a message. I'll try to get back to you as soon as I can. And so this episode is the second episode in our series on liberation theology. And in the first episode, we talked about a little about what it was, what it purports to be as a theology, as an analysis of oppression, an interrogation and reforming of tradition. And they, uh, ultimately, the goal of liberation theology is the reconstruction of society based on present experience to create a more just society, basically. And as I mentioned last time, I only hinted at it last time, a lot of this is inspired by the philosophy of Marxism. We'll get to where this comes from. It has other influences as well, as you'll see, but that's the one that makes it controversial. So we'll go over some of this today. And the first episode, just to recap, also mentioned the, the long history of Latin America and the background for understanding where this where this idea comes from and why it catches on when it does. And that's what we're going to go over today. Uh, this episode I'm calling Awakenings, 1958 to 1968. We're going to talk about the, the first practitioners of this, how they gain a foothold uh, in the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, and how it basically sweeps, uh, becomes a dominant form of theology, and influences a lot of people uh, in Latin America in the 1960s and 70s. So let's get started and talk for a moment um, about an event that really shakes up the Latin American world in the late 1950s, and that is the Cuban Revolution. If you don't know, the uh, Cuba was run by a more or less a dictator, a guy named Batista, up until 1950, um, end of 1958-1959, when a uh, the insurgency run by Fidel Castro uh, overthrew his government, and he had to flee. And the thing that's notable about this, again, I mentioned in the last episode, you have a lot of those in the 1950s and 60s in Latin America. This is different, and it's different because Batista's government had been allied with the United States. The United States, after World War II, was the big bully and still kind of is in Latin America, as we'll get to this in a moment, setting up, you know, overthrowing republics, uh, democratically elected governments that didn't suit its interests. And when Castro uh, defeated Batista and moved in, a couple of things to note is that two things. One, uh, the church was horrified because <laughs> he basically shut the church down almost immediately. Secondly, is that he had defeated the big bully in Latin America. This made him wildly popular. To this day, by the way, wildly popular. 
And what it would do within a few years, and I should probably stress this, he was not technically, not really a communist when he came to power initially. His brother was, Raul, uh, definitely a dyed-in-the-wool communist. Uh, he started making, you know, um, uh, overtures to the Soviets as soon as he got into power, but he had not openly embraced communism at that point. He would very quickly. Uh, the point is that his revolution becomes a beacon for basically anybody who hates American interference in Latin America in the 1960s. So a beacon for anti-American revolutionaries. Also, of course, it'll become, as I'll show in a moment, an opportunity for the Soviet Union to get involved in Latin America and try to undermine U.S. interests there. And what's behind all this, of course, as I mentioned before, is American interference in Latin American affairs. I mentioned this in the last podcast the whole term Banana Republic comes from American government's undermining of, of uh, Latin American governments, particularly that of Guatemala, 1954, where the uh, elected government was overthrown uh, by a military coup backed by uh, the United States. And what happens as a result of the Cuban Revolution is all of a sudden the United States is, of course, now deeply worried. They think they're afraid the Soviets have a good foothold in Latin America. And so John F. Kennedy in 1961 sets up his, what he calls an Alliance for Progress, which is a organization that's meant to promote economic development in Latin America, meant to promote the idea that American democracy and capitalism will bring, you know, uh, prosperity and everything to Latin America. At the same time, of course, he tries to overthrow uh, Fidel Castro in the Bay of Pigs invasion, disastrous invasion in 1961. The CIA tries to do this. Everybody winds up getting captured by Fidel. He parades them around a stadium. Again, this makes him by far the, you know, the, the biggest star in Latin America because, again, he survived the attempt by the big bully, the Yankee bully, to, uh, uh, to get rid of him. And, of course, he makes an alliance with the Soviet Union uh, shortly thereafter. This leads, I'm going through this really quickly, to the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Uh, that, they nearly come to, uh, to nuclear war to the Soviet Union and the United States. It also means the United States steps up its efforts to oppose communism in Latin America. And within several years, you're going to have several governments go to, go, uh, elected governments be taken over by military dictatorships in Latin America, Brazil, Bolivia in 1964, Almost certainly with the backing, I don't know if they were caused by the United States, but Brazil and Bolivia. And then 1965, I believe, with the intervention of the United States directly was the Dominican Republic. So all of a sudden you're having the United States back these regimes, many of which, we'll come back to this, and Brazil especially, are brutal. Um, they're repressive, they torture people. Uh, the United States is supporting them because they're worried about communism. And all this, again, I should mention all this. This is partly, you know, why I'm mentioning all this politi politics here. A lot of what's behind um, the growth of, uh, of liberation theology can't be understood without this context. At the same time, you're having attempts by both Fidel Castro, but also the Soviet Union. The KGB gets involved after he comes to power to try to export revolution, Marxist-inspired revolution. Castro immediately sends men to Panama in 1959 to try to, um, you know, incite insurgencies there. And with a few years, there are guerrilla groups, Marxist guerrilla groups, springing up in places like Peru, Colombia, Venezuela, Guatemala. And in fact, for a time, the KGB had this master plan, uh, which was to use all these national liberation movements 
across Latin America to uh, undermine American-backed regimes. And you have to remember, by the way, here when we say this, just because the United States and the Soviet Union are, are you know, using this as a battleground, most of these movements, and you will have communist-allied movements, you do have communist parties in a lot of these Latin American countries, most of these movements are really nationalist in orientation. What they really want is to get rid of the foreigners <laughs> that have a lot of control in their country. Again, the United States is the one that has the most control, so they are the most hated. But you also have the KGB trying to do this. In fact, you have, and I'll come back to them in the next episode, a group uh, of people from uh, from uh, Nicaragua who show up in Havana in 1959 called the Sandinistas. They'll be the more or less communist-backed guerrilla group there. And they were already in 1959 KGB agents among their numbers. So they are involved, is the KGB and some of these guerrilla groups. This begins to tramp down a little bit from the KGB standpoint after the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, but not on the Cuban side. They want to go on exporting revolution, and they do. Castro was intent on trying to export his revolution to the rest of Latin America and made several attempts to set up guerrilla bases in several countries. Doing this, by the way, um, in opposition to Moscow, who didn't want him to do this. They wanted to back down. In fact, and this is something that's behind the scenes here I don't have time to go into, in opposition to many Latin American communist parties. Some of them weren't into this. They wanted to do things other ways. Uh, And you get clashes between them in some of these countries. In fact, in 1967, just to give you another example, the Sandinistas, Sandinistas launched an attack on the Nicaraguan government in 1967, which ended in disaster, and left them basically out in the wilderness for the next few years uh, with nothing to do but rob banks, try to fund themselves and keep themselves alive. That same year, 67, Che Guevara, the great, you know, you've seen the t-shirts, I'm sure, um, partner uh, of uh, Fidel Castro, uh, goes to Bolivia to try to start a revolution, which ends in failure, and he's captured and executed. I mention all this because, you know, again, okay, what's all this to do with the church? Well, one of the things you have to understand is uh, Fidel Castro became a hero. And by the way, he becomes a hero to a lot of left-wing intellectuals. To this day, they still they they wet themselves talking about Fidel Castro, who, by the way, again, I can, I can, I can at least understand, you know, some of the, you know, the United States did some bad things in these countries, to say the very least. You know, someone stood up to them, but he was also a brutal dictator, um, Castro. And they, Western intellectuals romanticize any any sort of left-wing dictator. Um, you know, Castro, Che Guevara was not a dictator, but you, know, you get the idea. Mao, Mao Zedong, uh, they all love, they romanticize these people. Kind of in the same way that, you know, the United States government, I won't say romanticized, but basically as long as long as a dictator was an, uh, uh, officially anti-communist, they didn't ask any further questions. And similar with uh, Castro. But main point here is Castro was a hero to virtually every young male in Latin America. And you can imagine what the church has to do. You know, how do you get the, the God-made man who came down to earth died and was erected and died for our sins to compete with revolutionary with a gun. (laughs) Uh, It's difficult. Uh, And so my point is not only did Castro appeal to intellectuals, he appealed to Catholics, even Catholic priests. In 1966, a priest uh, named Camilo Torres, who had been educated in Europe, 
uh, got into a fight uh, with his bishop in 1965 over his political activism. He was doing activism with the poor, social justice stuff. Eventually, he got so upset, he quit and left the priesthood and went to fight, this is Colombia, by the way, went to fight with one of these guerrilla groups in Colombia, 1966, and got killed in a firefight. And the point is, by the mid-1960s, the bishops in Latin America collectively begin to understand they need to do something. Uh, because a lot like the church, more broadly speaking, around the time of Vatican II, they realize the rising generation doesn't have the same attachments to the church. And so, um, uh, long story short, as one writer put it, talking about this period in liberation theology, I'm quoting here, quote, the church wanted to prove that it was possible to do revolution without Marxism, unquote. Uh, they want to say, yes, we can make things change. We can get rid of these bad governments. We can get rid of this foreign interference. And this is where this opportunity for liberation theology comes, comes from. Now, who are these liberation theologians? One thing to note about this generation, the 50s and 60s of priests who come of age, uh, they're part of a generation in Latin America that comes to the fore where you have, because of industrialization, because of, you know, there's some economic growth, even though it's very unequal, and there's, there's, there's really dire poverty in a lot of places, who are middle class, who are educated. <clears throat> and so you're going to have um, that generation becoming aware of this stuff and being, again, you know, uh, um, educated in, as we're going to see, in European universities where things like Marxism are taught. Uh, the most famous of these, most important name in liberation theology, if you're aware of this, probably heard this name, is Gustavo Gutierrez. He was a Peruvian priest, born in 1928, uh, still alive. Uh, I think he's the last, one of the last of the major figures, certainly one of the first wave generation of thinkers um, <clears throat> uh, who came of age in the early 60s. Peruvian priest did most of his work uh uh, pastoral work, anyway, among college students. He's a theologian, academic theologian. Uh, became, was, at the time, in the early 1960s, the advisor to the National Union of Peruvian Catholic Students. So he had a lot of contacts in the student world. Remember, this is 1960s, age of student radicalism, stuff like this. Got his education at the University of Louvain in, um, in Belgium. And this is important. I'll come back to it, because like a lot of these, again, these middle-class um People who become these theologians again, they're gonna they're gonna take ideas from their mentors in Europe and bring them back, and so he's a very important figure. As we'll go through some of the stuff to, to, in this episode a little later, in the next one as well. But his works are central to the sort of canon of liberation theology. The second, uh, most in my institutionally speaking, more important person in this period, and the period covers 1958, 1968. What I'm talking about here. Uh, is Helder Camara, was a Brazilian bishop, bishop of Recife, I think is how you pronounce it, in Brazil, very poor area, northern Brazil, I think. And he was a bishop, and he's one of the first bishops to embrace this type of theology. Uh, in fact, he's known, I believe, his one of his epithets is Bishop of the Slums, for the work he did among the poor. And he's important for several reasons, one of which is he's he was, I believe, as early as the late 1950s, an, an, a self-identified socialist. And in fact, uh, interesting guy, he actually began life in Brazil in the 1930s as a member of a pro-Nazi group. 
You heard that right. There was a pro-Nazi group, and he, I guess he switched sides and went to be a Marxist socialist type after World War II. And as he made his way up the, the food chain, he actually is one of the co-founders of the, of the um, or one of the founders of the Brazilian's Bishops' Conference, uh, which was founded in the 1950s, as well as in 1955, one of the people who's behind the founding of the Latin Americans, uh, meeting of Latin American uh, bishops, that's bishops from the entirety of, the, of Latin America, which uh, I'm going to call CELAM, S-E-L-A-M is the acronym for it, which will be crucial to this whole story um, in terms of the creation of, in the, especially the influence of liberation theology. And he later on will become a critic. Uh, he's a critic of, of, of a lot of things in the church, but he's a critic, will be a critic as well of, uh, obviously, of its, the church's alliance with wealth and power uh, in Latin America, but also be a critic of Humana Vitae, the church's stance on contraception. I believe at one point he called, called Humana Vitae, if I'm not mistaken, a uh, device to torture wise with or something like this. Criticized clerical celibacy, favored women's ordination. You can kind of get where this is going. Uh, not necessarily, by the way, all liberation theologians went in that, went in that liberation theologians went in that direction. He did, and some of the other ones did as well. But that's where you come in with him with Helder Kamara, a very hooked up bishop. Another name to keep in mind here is Juan Luis Segundo. Um, by the way, Helder Kamara, born in 1909, died in 1999. Juan Luis Segundo, born in 1925, uh, died in 1996, was a Jesuit from Uruguay. Uh, was trained in, among other things, in his seminary education in existentialism, phenomenology, and the theology of Teilhard uh, de Chardin. Well, I won't go who that is, but if you know who that is, very sort of modernist theologian, early part of the 20th century. Founded a Center for Theological and Social Studies in 1965. Uh, again, will be tied in with the Latin American Bishops Conference, with all these other people he knows, Gutierrez and several other other um, uh, other thinkers, an influential thinker. And then finally, one more I'll mention. There's several others, but in this period, I think these are the most important names to know. Last but not least, not a theologian, but a philosopher and a layman. Uh, I think I pronounced his name correctly, Paulo Freire, a Brazilian educator, philosopher from Recife, the same area of Helder Camara, uh, 1921-1997, who was uh, someone who began in the late 1940s working with poor people uh, in uh, areas around uh, uh, Brazil, uh, educating them, trying to educate them. And he was sort of an innovative educator. He tried to use different methods other than the you know traditional lecture method, you know, um, dialogue, discussion, you know, type stuff. I won't go through this too much, too much detail. Suffice to say, he was deeply influenced by Marxist philosophy. And in fact, um, one of his key concepts he comes up with, which we'll get into some of this liberation theology stuff later on, uh, is what he calls, I think I'm, I'm butchering this, conscientization, that's conscience as in your conscience, conscientization. This is the idea that poor people need to be made aware of the fact that they are oppressed, that they are, you know, subject to, you know, uh, without their knowing it, being oppressed by the culture, being oppressed by the system, stuff like this. I have problems with this, to say the least. One thing to keep in mind here, and I'll say this about all these people because I'm going to really criticize <laughs> liberation theology here, is that they were not, they were not treating phantoms here. Um, the poverty in Latin America is very, very dire, has been for a long time. And so they were trying, they were trying to overcome, well, one thing they're trying to overcome is the sort of, 
you know, fatalism of the poor sometimes in Latin America. You know, the idea that, you know, you're always going to be poor and you can't do anything about it is very powerful among a lot of people. And so that's the appeal for someone like Freire of this Marxist doctrine, which what I don't like about it, by the way, is it <laughs> uh, it turns people into sort of mini, you know, political activists, maybe even fanatics sometimes. Uh, and there are problems with it besides that. But Freire was someone who was, um, part of this movement, friends with all these people, with definitely a friend with Gutierrez who taught together at a university uh, at one point. And, um, and Freire uh, was actually exiled from Brazil following the military coup in 1964. He will, um, at one point, I'll come back to him in a little bit anyway, but uh, important for that reason, published a very famous book in 1968 called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed which is, again, about how to teach, you know, again, in a sort of neo-Marxist vein. We'll go into too much detail, but very influential people in this period. And just a few words about the actual inspirations. I mentioned, you know, mentioned vaguely Marxist inspiration for some of these theologians, because it's one of the more controversial things about, um, about liberation theology. So where does this come from? Well, in the first instance, I remember I told you that these people... These theologians like Gutierrez and other people um, studied in in, um, in Europe at various universities, various seminaries, and they were influenced by a group of theologians. I won't go through too much detail. This would be a whole other series, basically. But they're sometimes called the Nouvelle Theologie or Nouvelle Theologians. Uh, were a group of theologians who, from the 1940s, 30s, uh, actually onward, tried to tried to attack the reigning neo-scholastic orthodoxy in the church. Long story short, they thought scholasticism was out of date, it was too philosophical, it was too abstract, they wanted to emphasize history instead of philosophy, they thought the church was too too hidebound, uh, it was too defensive against the modern world, they wanted to dialogue with the modern world, ecumenism was very important for these people, uh, they were very much into things like ecumenism with Protestants. Uh, they also many of them uh, had a fascination with Marxism. Um, uh, uh, Marie-Dominique Chenu, Yves-Marie-Dominique Chenu, was one of these French-Dominican priests who was part of this this movement, uh, later boasted, this is in the 1970s, I don't know if this is true, but he boasted in, a, in an interview that he was the first person in the Catholic Church to teach a class on Marx in a seminary setting in Europe. I have no idea that's true, but he said that. Um but in particular, as you get in the 1960s, Chenu and his colleague, um, Yves Congar, were very much interested in and intent on dialogue with Marxism. They thought the church could learn something from Marxism. What does the church learn from an atheist materialist philosophy dedicated to overthrowing the established order? We'll get to that. Um, the thing they note about this, by the way, is these theologians were censured, a lot of them, uh, in the 1950s, 40s, 50s. They eventually rehabilitated at the end of the 50s, and they basically come to dominate their ideas, the Second Vatican Council. And so people like Gutierrez and others studied with them in the 1950s and 60s. And I have to emphasize, by the way, all that stuff about Marx, that was really risque stuff in the 1940s and 50s. Not just because of the Cold War setting, because... The church has condemned socialism and communism multiple times. In um, the 1890s, 1891, I think, uh, Leo, the thir- Leo the 13th, Pope Leo the 13th, condemned socialism in uh, his encyclical Erum Navarum. 
Uh, Pius XI, and I, can't, I don't have the name of the, it is encyclical in front of me, condemned communism in 1937 as incompatible uh, with, with uh, Catholicism as sinful. And in 1949, the Holy Office, what we call today the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the Holy Office uh, basically condemned communism and basically, basically issued a, a ruling saying that anybody that joined a communist party was de facto excommunicated. So the church had already basically said communism is essentially sinful. So to go around talking about wanting to dialogue with Marxists was, again, a kind of a, a risque thing to do, to say the least. And we know, by the way, these theologians influenced uh, liberation theology because they said so. Uh, in the 1970s, Gutierrez, another theologian we'll get to next time, Leonardo Boff, both said so. Uh, in some books they wrote together, they cited them as influences. Uh, and some of them studied with them. Gutierrez studied with de Lubac, and I think Congar as well, maybe even Chenu in the 1950s. Uh, others, uh, Camara, for example, uh, studied, didn't study with him, but he studied the thought of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin while he was at the University of Louvain. And so you have, <clears throat> and of course, this is also probably, it's certainly where Gutierrez encountered Marx while he was in Europe, while he was at Lyon, studying with de Lubac, University of Lyon in, um, in France. He uh, studied Marx and Freud and other things. Uh, and, as, uh, and so you have all those influences coming from them. You also had a couple other uh, thinkers uh, influencing liberation theology. <clears throat> Excuse me. One was the work of Jacques Maritain, the French philosopher, a Thomist, but someone who, again, like some of the Nouvelle Theologians, Syllogie types, wanted the church to embrace certain aspects of modernity, particularly ideas of human rights and what's sometimes called personalism, right? In, in, we'll go into this too much detail. Uh, but he was one thinker, very influential, actually, especially in the, uh, up through the 1940s in Latin America. As you get to the 50s and 60s, you have uh, the more avant-garde, progressive, whatever you want to call it, theologians, moving from Maritain to a man named Emmanuel uh, Mounier, and Mounier is another uh, personalist philosopher who became more attractive to Latin American theologians, partly because his, his uh, ideas were mostly were more openly transformative in their potential. Mounier is someone who saw modern civilization as fundamentally, if you like, derailed uh, by materialism and individualism and, of course, capitalism. That's a big one, obviously. And Mounier thought, and I'm quoting here, that, quote, a total reconstruction of our civilization, unquote, was necessary for the true development and flourishing of the human person. That's the kind of language they were wanting to hear in the 1960s. And finally, a couple of other uh, notable influences on these theologians. One is uh, not so much an idea, well, I guess it was an idea in a way, but a movement... <clears throat> Uh, which started during World War II in France. Remember, France was occupied by the Nazis during World War II and collaborated with them. And uh, during that occupation, the, um, a bunch of French, you know, young French youth were, were deported to factories in Germany. And while this happened, bishops appealed to priests in France, young priests, to join them covertly as workers. But a thousand of them did. They went willingly into these camps. Uh, they were all sussed out immediately and either um, put into other camps themselves or forcibly repatriated. But it gave some enterprising French clergy ideas. 
because in 1942, one of them, Father Algros, Algros, founded a seminary called the Mission de Paris in Lisieux. And what the Mission de Paris was basically is the idea that the working class uh, by the 1940s has become dechristianized in France, as they no longer practice the faith. And so the idea was to treat them like mission territory. You know, Mission de Paris, Mission de Paris, Mission of Paris. And in fact, this was given, this was given impetus by a, a, a study that was published in 1944 by name Abed Godin, who was associated with the Mission de Paris, a report called uh, France Pays de Mission, which is a France, a country of mission, a quotation, uh, question mark, and sold wildly 100,000 copies, but basically it described a country in which the future generations were clearly not going to practice the faith. And so this gave an impetus to this idea, and this is where this idea comes from, of worker priests, of priests, and this is what the Mission de Paris did, was they sent about 100 priests or so uh, in total over several years from the late 1940s into factories, industrial factories, with the idea that instead of trying to, you know, evangelize them, get them to come back to Mass, they would instead share their lives with them first. They would go there, they would not wear clericals, they would not do the sacraments, they would just go in there and say, I'm a Catholic priest, but I'm one of you, I'm going to you know, um, uh, work, join unions like you. And the whole idea was to embrace their whatever modern conditions in order to win them over for the faith, I suppose. What happened in the event is that several of these priests began joining unions that had ties to communism. Some of these began participating in strikes. Two of them got arrested. Got the hell beat out of them, by the way, by the cops. The gendarmes. Uh, others uh, joined communist-led peace movements and congresses. In other words, they started abandoning their actual priesthood to go do all this stuff. In fact, at one point, you began to have members of these worker priest movements uh, openly criticizing the church and accusing it of it with, of complicity with the capitalist oppressors. And so by 1954, the Vatican Pius XII stepped in and shut the whole thing down. Nevertheless, this left a lasting impact on a lot of people, a lot of clergy in France. People like Yves-Marie Yves Dominique Chenu, who I've already mentioned, who actually was, he actually worked with some of these priests. He didn't do that himself, but he knew some of them. And Yves Congar. Uh, and that idea uh, that the church should divest itself of any trace of its privileges in order to reach the oppressed workers is echoed in liberation theology. And then finally, uh, and it, that gets to these theologians through their teachers, it also gets there directly through one of these worker priests. One of these priests actually, named Louis-Joseph Lebray, will actually spend a lot of his time um, in Latin America after all this goes down in the 40s and 50s. And he'll found uh, a, a study of uh, economy and humanism in Brazil in the 1940s. But uh, you'll literally have direct links to this movement, this European movement, to Latin America. Then finally, one last uh, sort of influence, uh, European influence, it's mostly European, uh, is the uh, influence of the, the uh, Center for Cultural Formation in Cuernavaca, Mexico, which was founded by a priest uh, at the time named Ivan Illich. Ivan Illich was an Austrian convert from Lutheranism, um, studied in Rome, became a rector at a seminary in Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico 
and eventually moved on to found this center in uh, in Latin America, which ostensibly was for the training of missionary priests to go to Latin America. And from the time of its opening in 1961 and to the time of its closing, I think in 1976, some 1,200 priests from Europe and America came through there. However, what it was really for was uh, Illich basically to undermine the whole missionary, <laughs> the whole mission idea of mission, uh, because uh, by that time he had become convinced that the that the church shouldn't send mission missionaries to Latin America. Why? Because he thought that they were too uh, culturally chauvinistic, that they was an imposition culturally and economically speaking on the people of Latin America. They didn't need American missionaries with their capitalism and their their arrogance. And he was right about the arrogance, by the way. Uh, coming down there and telling people how to be, be Catholics and everything. And um, he was very, very critical, was Illich, of the, of the church, of being too institutional. By the time you get to the 60s, he's criticizing the church's stance on contraception. This is kind of a big thing. Uh, and in fact, uh, by the late 60s, he's called to Rome and eventually leads the priesthood, essentially, uh, over this. Uh, having said all that, he influenced a lot. He, by the way, he never embraced uh, liberation theology. He actually, a weird guy, had a real serious critique of modernity, uh, real critical of modernity, probably found too much modernity in liberation theology, I guess. But he influenced a lot of people who taught with him at this Center for Cultural Formation, including Gustavo Gutierrez, Juan Luis Segundo, others, members of this liberation theology movement. Uh, and so it became a hub for these people. And again, it's one of these networks that are formed of like-minded people that uh, allow them to work together to get their ideas um, into official church, you know, not its binding teaching, but its official teaching anyway, at a practical level. One last thing I need to address here. So I've talked about some of the influences here with, you know, liberation theology I have to address this, um, because about seven, six, seven years ago, a man named, and I think I'm not going to butcher this, named, uh, yeah, Jan Pachepa? Jan Pachepa, I think that's how you pronounce the name. A former KGB agent wrote a book, actually wrote an article for the National Review, where, in which he claimed that uh, the Soviet Union, the, the KGB, invented liberation theology, that they cooked it up, brought it to Latin America in order to poison, I guess, people's minds or Catholic minds or something like this. And um, he wasn't the first person, by the way, to make this claim, in fact. The first guy to actually claim that the, the, um, the Soviets invented liberation theology was a guy named Robert Chapman. In an article, I don't have the, the title of the journal in front of me, it was an intelligence journal article. Excuse me. And um, I think it's called The Church and Revolution. Anyway, in that article, Robert Chapman, who, by the way, is a former CIA operative, made the accusation that the Metropolitan Nicodeme, who was a, a high-ranking member of the Russian Orthodox Church in the 1960s, who was sent as a representative to the World Council of Churches, which you know what the World Council of Churches is, it's this mostly Protestant ecumenical body. It's formed in the 1940s after World War II. It's supposed to promote ecumenism and stuff like this. Um, he claims he brought that idea with him um, to, again, infiltrate the World Council of Churches and apparently, by proxy, I guess, the Catholic Church 
in the 1960s. Now, a couple of things here about Chapman. Uh, we know for a fact, actually, that Nicodem, uh, who was an Orthodox you know, bishop, uh, was being used by the KGB as an agent. We know that. There are references to him, and we have files on that. Um, so that part of that's true. And we also know, by the way, the World Council of Churches uh, was definitely infiltrated by this by the KGB uh, at the latest in the 1970s. They definitely had people working for them in the WCC. As you can imagine, the World uh, Council of Churches is a very left-wing organization. They were already sympathetic with communism, so it wasn't that big of a stretch. Um, by the way, if you've ever, ever, ever seen, if you've ever seen the uh, TV show The Americans... Long story, the TV show is about Soviet agents living in America in the 1970s as Americans. Um, in that series, they actually portray this, where this this pastor in the, in the show works for the WCC. And uh, I mention that because that's actually pretty accurate. And if you don't know why, it's because the creator of that TV show, The Americans, was a former CIA operative. <laughs> so uh, we know this. That's a fact. That having been said, I can find no evidence that this is actually true, these accusations that the KGB invented liberation theology. Um, I don't know where, I don't know where Chapman's getting it from in his article. He cites, he cites a, something called the intelligence digest, which apparently is a, an intelligence newsletter or was, I actually found some copies of this on the internet, not the one he cites from 1981. It, it's a completely unsourced newsletter with items about places across the, the third world and stuff with the Soviet Union. So I, I have no idea what he's talking about. I, I, I but this way, um, a lot of people criticized Jan Pachepa when he came out in, in um, 2015 with his book and his essay. And I'll say this, he has some real knowledge, Pachepa, uh, read up on him a little bit. He was definitely, he definitely worked with the Latin American part of the KGB and everything. But I think he's just sort of spinning out a tale people want to hear <laughs> for the National Review crowd. I mean, look, I'm a conservative guy, but this 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 is, sounds like baloney to me is the point. Um, there's no reason to think the KGB had to invent anything. As I just, just went through this, there are plenty of people reading Marx in Europe who could have influenced and did influence liberation theologians. And plus, it kind of makes, it's kind of condescending. It makes it sound if sound like the Latin American theologians weren't bright enough to appropriate Marx for themselves. So that part's probably not true. Although uh, it's still an open question, by the way, did the KGB have any influence with the liberation theologians? I've not seen any evidence of that. It wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me. Uh, academics usually make good targets for intelligence organizations, at least with regards to ideology. Why? Because academics are very idealistic. As you're going to see, liberation theologians fit that bill very, very easily. So may have been some contact we don't know, but definitely not created by the KGB. The KGB were much more interested in creating, you know, guerrilla units so they could undermine American-backed regimes than they were with, you know, theology in the Catholic Church. Anyway, so that's as far as we can tell the inspiration. So how so how does it come about that the Church of Latin America begins in official documents espousing doctrines that partly come from Karl Marx? <clears throat> so <clears throat> what happens is there's a there's a 
you know, a, a change of ideas I just kind of talked about in vague terms. We'll still be more clear in a minute. But there's also institutional building, institution building that goes into this within the church itself. Because if you don't know, by the time you get to the 1960s, the church is about to grow, I mean, worldwide, but also in Latin America, become a lot more bureaucratic. Uh, and this has to do partly, a lot of it has to do with the creation of bishops' conferences. And in fact, in 19, uh, I already mentioned this, in 1952, Dom Helder Camara, the red bishop, as he's sometimes called because he was a socialist, uh, was part of the creation of the Brazilian Bishops' Conference in 1955 with the creation of, of CLAM, the meeting of Latin American bishops. The first one was held in 1955. You had the creation of a sort of standing communication network. Um, it has, the CLAM has, you know, it's like it's like a bishops' conference. It has, you know, offices and stuff like that and positions. And it will become a network for those prelates who are coming up through the seminaries who have progressive ideas. And um, later in the 1960s, they'll provide what essentially are positions for them within the church for this younger generation of more activist, more progressive bishops, ones, those ones who had studied in Europe, like Gutierrez and others. And they are kept, by the way, in touch with each other by people like Helder Camara, who, who convokes informal meetings between these people uh, in the early 1960s. Which, by the way, one change also that makes these networks uh, important in the 1950s and 60s is air travel. Air travel all of a sudden gets a lot cheaper in the 1950s and 60s. Again, this is before the internet, so you can't zoom, you can't do anything like that. And so all these changes begin to sort of feed into the growth of these ideas. <clears throat> and that starts in the 1950s. I also have to mention other something else that starts in the 1950s, which is that one other source of these ideas comes from the Protestant world. In uh, the 1950s, a man named Richard Shaw, S-H-A-U-L, a Presbyterian missionary to Latin America who spent many decades in first Colombia and then Brazil from the 1950s. Uh, he published a book in 1952 called Encounter with Revolution, in which he tried to get his fellow Presbyterians, who were not noted for their social justice activism, to become more activist in social justice terms. A few years later, 1955, he became involved with the World Council of Churches, the same one that would become <laughs> infiltrated by the, by the Soviets, and began a, starting a series of conferences geared towards seminary students in Latin America called the, quote, Christian Responsibility Toward Areas of Social Change. At least that's the title of it. And these met basically yearly, and eventually they led to the creation of something called the Church and uh, of called Church and Society in Latin America, or, or ISAL, I-S-A-L, is the acronym in Spanish. In 1961, again, more network building for these progressive Protestant theologians. But in the mid-1960s, Shaw had become radicalized. And in the midst of all these, you know, dictatorships taking over and stuff like this, he begins calling in the 1965-66, openly calling for armed revolution and guerrilla warfare, and arguing that it is the duty of Christians to embrace it. Pretty heavy stuff. Within a few years, his followers, his younger followers, being a little more savvy, began looking for a different way to sell their ideas to North American audiences. North American audiences, excuse me. And instead of using the term revolution, they started using the term liberation instead of it. And this was partly to sell the idea. It was also partly the idea to 
indicate their rejection of the whole idea of development. Remember, go back to JFK's idea, the Alliance for uh, whatever, uh, Alliance for uh, was it development? I, I remember, I've forgotten it already. Um, but it's meant to indicate a rejection of theories of development, of, if you like, moderate theories of change. Uh, things are so bad in Latin America, the situation's so awful, it's an emergency, we can no longer go with moderate, you know, we can't wait any longer, right? And this is something I should mention, by the way, in the midst of all this, there are governments in the mid-1960s who try to take up that idea. In, um, in Chile, for example, a guy named Eduardo Frey, well, the Christian Democratic Party there, tried to sell you know, development in order to, you know, get people out of poverty to overcome some of the problems in Chile later on in um, uh, other places to be tried. In other words, that American style, what John F. Kennedy wanted, and by the late 60s, it's pretty clearly failed. And again, a lot of these places come under the thumb of dictators anyway. And so there's this real sense that something bigger needs to be done. Evolution. Or you sell it as liberation, it sounds a lot better. <laughs> Uh, and all of these themes, by the way, we'll get into liberation theology and Catholic liberation theology, and which, by 1965, not until then, because they're kind of in separate worlds, but because of something we'll get to in a moment, Vatican II, by 1965, you already begin to have those Protestant um, theologians working together with the Catholics. So they're already putting together a united front, if you like, of Catholic progressive theologians. <laughs> so that's one angle. Another... Um, thing that feeds into this, and you've probably heard this term before, are the beginnings of these so-called base communities, which again, begin the late 1950s or the earliest versions of them. <clears throat> if you don't know what base communities are, I think I mentioned these before, there were pre-shortages, still are, in rural areas in Latin America. And so in response to this, you would have um, parishes, you know, pastoral leaders in some of these places in these poor rural parishes, uh, they would appoint a layman to, um, you know, because it would be several months in between the time a priest would come to say Mass. They would have them, you know, run, you know, um, Bible studies or, you know, sort of catechism classes for everybody to keep the sort of community in being in between time the time the, the, the priest comes back so you can have the sacraments. Uh, for praying together, for 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 uh, singing hymns, so you can have some regular community. Otherwise, that church would be totally locked up for a month or longer on end. Uh, and these things seem to have some success in the late 1950s. I mention this because first thing to mention here is they started well before before liberation theology really came on the scene. What happens is by the early 1960s, they'd had such um, they'd had such success with this stuff. The bishops in places like, for example, uh, Brazil, because uh, they had such pre-shortages, started issuing pastoral plans. They issued a couple of these in the early 1960s in Brazil, one called the Emergency Plan, the other called the Joint Pastoral Plan, which, um, from 1962 onward, whose idea was to sort of make use of these communities to sort of, um, 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 again, try to give people more investment in the church. What's going to happen, of course, is, as I mentioned, is that the personnel of the Latin American church, all these new seminarians coming in who've been trained in these progressive seminaries, get into the these parishes. Um, what basically uh, happens is you have these ideas, which, you know, 
these things are all done by committees based upon the, the, the latest sociological research and all this stuff, which is all recommending this stuff. Uh, the same people who have been trained, it, it, you know, the same people like Gutierrez and their friends, basically, progressive activists. And so where they're wanting to, you know, emphasize the laity, emphasize the horizontal nature of the community, emphasize the idea that community and participation means decentralizing existing parish structures. I'm quoting here from an uh, article here in which, uh, again, you have this idea of a community-centered uh, parish, a decentralized parish, um, existing in some uh, instances within parish boundaries. Why, why am I pointing all this out? My point out is this didn't come about necessarily organically that these communities embraced liberation theology. What happened was you had these, these activists come in there and sort of like set up their own <laughs> within parishes. Uh, almost like little cells for activists in some regards, and that begins at this same period. And by the way, these ba and by the way, I'm not saying these base communities. By the way, I think are basically a good idea. I just don't think they should be allied with, with liberation theology. Um, but by the end of the 1960s, they're booming because they they feel a real need, right? So let's put it that way, right? Um, so that's. Uh, that's uh, that's a huge component of what that'll be. That'll be one of the major institutional that and these bishops' conferences and stuff like that, institutional basis of of liberation theology going forward. Other thing that happens, of course, the big thing that happens in the 1960s is Vatican II. A lot of these bishops, along with their, they'll take their theological advisors with them to the council. It's a huge thing. For the Latin Americans, they go there. They meet more theologians and bishops from Europe and the United States. It gives them uh, experience in this sort of thing. Uh, in fact, uh, when they go there, uh, Helder Camara plays uh, a fairly pivotal role. He's one of the people who helps draft Gaudium et Space. Gaudium et Space is the Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, which is sort of a love song to the modern world. <laughs> uh, it's probably my the 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 document of Vatican II I have the most problem with, to be honest with you. Uh, but it's all about dialoguing with the modern world, dialoguing with people outside the church, and, you know, getting outside of, you know, that sort of thing. Very much, it, it breathes the air of the 1960s, does Gaudium et Space. And Kamara was a big, big part of that. Uh, and so this is a big meeting point for this. It also feeds into the immediate, and I won't, I won't go to it in too much detail, but that's, that's part of one of the things uh, that the Second Vatican Council emphasizes. Uh, and, and in fact, it'll be a big deal, as we're going to see in a moment, uh, when they do start to get their a foothold in institutions, they'll, these uh, liberation theologians will make, they will make Vatican II a justification for almost everything they do. That, in the words of Paul VI, who, by the way, is on their side. He's kind of a progressive, too, in theological terms. He writes an encyclical in 1967 called Populorum Progressio, which talks about development, talks about the developing world. And they, they will cite this liberally in their, um, in, their, uh, in their works. And so you have all this coming together that sort of feeds into this, this switch that goes on in Latin America. So I can't stress this enough just how very conservative, both in theological terms, but socially speaking, that most Latin American churches have been until this point. And so after 1965, things begin to accelerate. One thing that happens, I don't have time to go into too much here, is the, um, 
uh, is you have a change in the Jesuits. Their superior general dies, and he is replaced by, and I don't know, I don't know his background, but Father Pedro Arupe. I think he's Mexican. I don't know that for a fact. Probably wrong. Don't quote me. He becomes uh, superior general, and I say this because he oversees a world historical shift because the Jesuits go from being the most hidebound, reactionary, uh, authoritarian religious order in the church to being the most left-wing, <laughs> the most uh, progressive in the entire church almost overnight within a few years of the council. He's the one who oversees this. This quickly turns into an endorsement of those types of, you know, again, social justice themes and stuff like this in Latin America. By 1967, they're already issuing documents to this effect uh, in the Latin American church or the Jesuits, their Latin American branch or whatever. I don't know the, the terms here. Uh, and so Otto pays a, a big figure in that regard. And by 67, you're beginning to get people, because, of course, all the things going on in Latin America begin to get kind of risque. They're kind of beginning to to make greater and greater greater and greater um 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 uh greater and greater plays uh uh what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh greater and greater uh, embraces of things like socialism and uh Marxism. And to give you an example of this, there was a, uh, a bunch of bishops in, in 1967 who were responding to Paul VI, uh, Paul VI uh, Populorum Progressio, Populorum Progressio, uh, which means on the development of peoples, by the way. And so a bunch of bishops uh, from what was called then the Third World wrote a, uh, published a letter called A Letter to the Peoples of the Third World. And seven of the bishops uh, who signed this were all from Brazil. Their leader, of course, was Don Helder Camara. And in this document, they they go really whole hog in for, you know, um, well, I mean, Marxist-sounding language. In the opening part of the document, they refer to, for example, the poor as, quote, the proletariat of humanity, unquote. Proletariat being, of course, a Marxist term. It starts out within the first few paragraphs. Uh, it says basically that not all revolutions are, I'm paraphrasing, not all revolutions are good ones, but some have been good. And it cites in support of revolutions, the revolution of 18, uh, the French Revolution. <laughs> uh, the one, you remember, which destroyed the church in France. Uh, but and it was good because it, uh, it, uh, it proclaimed the rights of man. <laughs> uh, you couldn't get more provocative than that uh, at that point. Uh, 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 citing the French Revolution as a good example of revolutions. Uh, at one point, the document uh, quotes approvingly the uh, words, I think, of a, of a it doesn't really say, uh, I think it's an Orthodox patriarch, Eastern, one of the Eastern Orthodox churches. Well, it, it, cites, it cites them, uh, uh, this is the quotation it cites, quote, authentic socialism is Christianity lived to the full, in basic equality and with a fair distribution of goods, unquote. Uh, equating Christianity with socialism. Yeah, this is, this is things are getting, they're getting real here, right? Um, <clears throat> the, um, yeah, and so you're beginning to get this really aggressive, you know, condemnation of capitalism, all that stuff. They condemn Marxism too. They actually do that. They'll say that they'll do that and a lot of liberation theologians will, even though they're drawing on Marx. But um, but they put all this emphasis on 
and this is the key to her, emphasizing human liberation, liberation from human bondage, liberation from economic, from social, from all these things that are not supernatural. <laughs> not the traditional notion of human liber of Christian liberation, which is liberation from sin and death, but everything about human uh, emancipation and liberation. And this document, the letter to the third world, uh, peoples of the third world, ends, one of the last things it says is, quote, and it's talking about Jesus, um, well, I'll, 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 I'll read you this here. It says, Jesus took all humanity upon himself to lead it to eternal life. And the earthly foreshadowing of this is social justice, the first form of brotherly love. When Jesus freed humankind from death through his resurrection, he brought all human liberation movements to their fullness in eternity. All human liberation movements. All of them? Really? This is heady stuff, obviously. Deeply problematic, but heady stuff, right? Uh, and so you're beginning to, they're beginning to feel their oats, in other words, or these uh, liberation theologians. And what's going to, uh, and you can even see this uh, a year later, 1968, there's a, uh, a so-called Comblin affair in Brazil. I mentioned Joseph Comblin briefly, I think I mentioned him earlier. Joseph Comblin was a Belgian-born priest who was a colleague of Don Helder Camara, taught at seminary in Recife. And in June of 1968, someone leaked a document to Brazilian newspapers, which was been prepared um, by Comblin. And uh, the document basically was a sort of plan for the overthrow of the state in Brazil and the establishment, and I'm quoting here, quote, a dictatorship of the people in its place <laughs> by violent means if necessary. Now, again, be clear here. Um, the government in, in power in Brazil at that point is really brutal. So, but all this stuff, yeah, but they're, they're now having a theologian openly playing with the idea of violent revolution. Now, when this got out, this caused a firestorm. Father Comlin uh, tried to play it off, saying it was, it was only a rough draft. The uh, people at the uh, seminary basically said that it, it came from the seminary, but yes, but it was, was not an official document. Elder Kamara tried to be coy and said, well, everyone has, I'm quoting here, quote, everyone has the right to dissent. I simply hear all opinions, unquote. Uh, but at the same time, he refused to get rid of uh, Comblin. In fact, he confirmed him in his, in his uh, job as professor uh, and backed him to the hilt. It only ended when the Brazilian government revoked um, Comblin's visa and sent him back to Belgium. So, again, things are escalating here as you get toward... You know, the Annus Mirabilis, 1968, 1968, the year of all the uh, student riots across the across the uh, the world, uh, the Tet Offensive, of, you know, people losing their minds in the late 1960s. Well, in the midst of all this, <clears throat> the, um, uh, the Latin American bishops decide to meet again for the second time. Uh, this time at Medellin in Colombia. And, um, what happened uh, after Vatican II is that basically progressive clerics and their theological advisors more or less took over, see them, and used it as a launching pad for their ideas. And they began two years before this in 1966, holding consultations, all run by them, basically, uh, which produced working documents for people to talk about at the meeting for the bishops. <clears throat> Participation in these consultations were, were by invitation only. And these invitations only came from, well, the progressive bishops who were running the whole thing. 
Uh, the documents were sent to Rome for inspection, and they were heavily criticized. However, and they were also criticized, by the way, by other Latin American bishops who didn't like them. However, Paul VI called the leadership of, of the CELAM conference to Rome and basically told them to ignore all the criticism and just go ahead and do what they wanted. And so they did. Without any regret, didn't make any changes to the documents before they got to the conference, which, by the way, came back to bite them um, because the bishops could plausibly claim later on they weren't really consulted. <clears throat> and so, the conference, uh, you have only 140 bishops out of the 600 in Latin America meet. Uh, most of the bishops actually were not dyed-in-the-wool progressive types, not radicalized people like Kamara. But, with the help of some 127, 120 excuse me, staff members, theological advisors, along with the bishops, um, they guided most of the documents, uh, the crucial documents to their liking. I say crucial ones. They issued, I think, six. There are three that really bear the stamp of what comes to be called liberation theology. Um, and I mention this because uh, most bishops wound up accepting the documents probably because they didn't realize what was in them. <laughs> they didn't realize how radical some of their, their fellow bishops had become. And to give you an idea about this, and I need to dwell on this for a second, uh, according to one participant in all this, he wrote this later on, later decades later, uh, there were things in those documents that some bishops didn't know what they were. They didn't know what they were agreeing to. These are his words, quote, There were code words or sleepers in the documents. It sounds harmless, but if you take it seriously, they have implications. The people that wrote these things had more in mind than the people who approved them, unquote. Some bishops actually did openly reject the documents before they voted on them because they were so upset about this, but it backfired because uh, it made the rest of the bishops uh, close ranks with each other and they passed these things overwhelmingly. But to give you an idea of how radicalized things had gotten, you begin to have, um, it was about a month before uh, they met in August of that year, 68, did the bishops. Well, a month before that, they were having these consultations and uh, a famous one of these uh, paper presented in one of these, uh, these consultations was by Gustavo Gutierrez, called Toward a Theology of Liberation. Now, he's not the one who invented that term, but he's talking about this in this work. And this has become the basis for a, a much famous, more famous book he writes a couple of years later. And in this, he takes a very, very... Um, you see some of the themes of liberation theology. Uh, he says early on in this that... Theology basically requires, or true theology, true faith, basically requires what he calls um, a, um, uh, a commitment to the process of liberation. Uh, this is the full quote. If faith is a commitment to God and human beings, it is not possible to live in today's world without a commitment to the process of liber liber liberation. And what does he mean by liberation? He does mention, by the way, spiritual things in this. But the overwhelming emphasis is on liberation from human economic oppression, political oppression, psychological oppression, stuff like this. Um, he goes on to criticize um, a few pay, uh, uh, um, a little while later the church's traditional uh, emphasis on salvation as you know eternal life, as and the criticism goes. All this emphasis on the next life devalues this life. And the church needs to embrace this world. It needs to embrace human emancipation. It needs to embrace human development. 
It needs to give it its... It needs to make, make that... He doesn't come out and say it, but it's more important. <laughs> it's more important to him clearly than, than eternal life. I'm putting words in his mouth. He would, be, uh, he would say no, but you read this, that's the vibe you get from it. Uh, I'll read the passage just to even make this clear. Quote, The absolute salvation provided by God in the hereafter, which diminishes the present life, has led to a very peculiar outlook. Human institutions will be considered important if they are oriented to the hereafter. All other institutions have no value because they will pass away. Unquote. That's a very traditionally enlightenment kind of criticism, right? Uh, the church is too unworldly. It needs to embrace this world. The task of theology, as he puts it, uh, is to, uh, well, as he puts it this way, quote, the theology of liberation means establishing the relationship that exists between human emancipation in the social, political, and economic orders and the kingdom of God, unquote. He goes on to say that salvation is not uh, purely religious. It is not purely um, a matter of religious things. It's about saving this world and saving society. Uh, as he puts it toward the end of this, uh, to quote, to labor to transform this world is to save it. So you have all this emphasis on social transformation and overthrowing oppression. That's the main message of the Christian gospel. And again, I'm quoting selectively here. I don't want to overdo it. He does mention spiritual things, but they clearly get the short shrift here. And he ends this uh, notes toward a, toward a theology of liberation, uh, citing Karl Marx. Uh, and basically, because he's citing Karl Marx, saying that Christianity is a, um, uh, basically a, a colluding with the powers that be. It's colluding with the wealthy classes, colluding with the middle class to oppress the poor. And, um, and, how, and talking about how he wants to change that with this theology of liberation. So you have this embrace of Marx openly, right? Now, the thing about this is these ideas don't necessarily get translated directly into those documents at Medellin. They're much more, they, they put them, they kind of put them in code. I mean, that's, that's kind of what they did uh, at, um, uh, at, uh, at Medellin in those documents. I won't go this, make this too much longer, but um, the main thing here is that you have uh, some of those emphases, some of the stuff I've mentioned already. Remember um, pa Paulo Freire's idea of conscientiation? Con God, did I pronounce that the right way? Conscientiation, by the way, is a term, like there's a Marxist term that's more easy to pronounce. It's called consciousness raising. That's essentially what that is. Uh, and it gets into those documents. Most of the bishops didn't know what the hell that meant. <laughs> that's why they used the term. And if you're wondering, by the way, what I'm describing sounds kind of kind of like misleading intentionally so i think it was uh i some of the reading i did for this this uh this episode one of the people who did this defended it saying well you know anybody could have done what we did we weren't it wasn't a conspiracy we were the ones up at three o'clock in the morning writing out these documents if they wanted to do that it could have done that <laughs> seriously as if bishops wanted to go to a conference and stay at three o'clock in the morning with their advisors writing documents the only people who are willing to do that are activists <laughs> who are clearly, to me, not acting in, not acting honestly. Uh, that's why I, I'm getting, yeah, this sounds bad to me in, in, in any case. But what you essentially have, and they, they, don't, they don't use the word 
socialism. They actually condemn Marxism in some of these documents. But it clearly, and this is why that CELAM conference of 1968, the Medellin conference, is so important. It is the first time the church has basically come out against the established order in Latin America. And because they used these words that were equivocal that could be used to put much more radical meanings into church documents, within a few years you're going to have people like Gustavo Gutierrez advocating violent revolution openly in their works. You're going to have people like Leonardo Boff, who we'll get to, basically saying that, yeah, yeah, Christianity basically is Marxism. Rightly understood, it's basically the same as Marxism, because Marx is right. Uh, and so that's how you get this, this great twist, where for the next better part of a decade or so, until into the 1970s, being the 1980s, this will be the going thing in Latin America. It'll have a major impact on uh, life in Latin America, and it'll be bound up with some, you know, some of the violent struggles that are going on in Latin America, of which there are many in Latin America during that time frame. So next time, next episode, we'll talk about what effect is the high tide of uh, liberation theology, its heyday in the 1970s, and talk about um, <clears throat> what problems it encounters and how it eventually will begin, uh, it'll begin to face some opposition, eventually, of course, in the person of a pope who's not as fond of communism as some of these people are. So that's it uh, for Controversy in Third History. Thank you, thank you guys for listening. Hope you enjoyed this. Again, if you like it, go subscribe. Go to uh, Anchor and subscribe, or go to our YouTube channel. You can available on YouTube as well. You can subscribe there. Um, please help spread the word if you would like. Please get the I'm trying to get the word out. My podcast. Hopefully, the next episode will not go on too long. But uh, till next time, uh, the next episode on liberation theology. This is Derek Taylor. Derek Taylor wishing you a healthy and blessed and happy week. Take care. God bless.